You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Matt, Willie P., Thomas, Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Scarlet Dawn, The Admiral Benbow, Lisa, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Jacob, Axios, Pitlock, the Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Gangsway Sally, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. So it's never a good idea to talk about current events on a podcast, at least not a podcast like this. They call this kind of content evergreen content because it's not dependent on a particular time. Unlike something like news or politics or even, you know, movie reviews, People could be listening to this years down the line, and it wouldn't change the basis of the content, unless, that is, I start talking about current events, and then it's just not at all relevant. But right now, they're on my mind, and for many of you, that's the same. On the date of this recording, it is February 25th, 2022. Russia invaded Ukraine yesterday. And you know, I've been glued to the news, as I know a lot of you have been, and it's been tough to watch, but also inspiring to see the Ukrainian people standing up for their nation, and to see the people in Russia protesting the actions of their government, despite the consequences that they are now facing. But that's not what I'm here to talk about, that's context. I don't want to minimize the experiences of anyone in the world. I don't know what any of the people there are really going through. I know it's not great for anyone involved. You know, if you're a person who prays or otherwise focuses your energy, then now would be a good time to do so for the people of Ukraine. But I... Well, so I'm in the car the other day. 
I was listening to the radio, which I don't usually do. Usually, I prefer to listen to podcasts, but it was a good day for live news. I was listening to NPR's live coverage of the first invasion forces to cross the border. No, actually it was uh, the BBC on my local NPR station. They interviewed a former Ukrainian president, I think. Maybe it was a secretary of state. And he had his things to say. And then they interviewed a Russian ambassador. I think it was to France. In that second interview, they were talking about the first real fighting to go on at the airport. Not in Kiev, but in Maripol, I think it was. That Russian ambassador told the interviewer that it was actually the Ukrainian aggression against Russians that prompted the shelling. Sounded crazy to me. In fact, sounded like a certain Austrian dictator talking about the Sudetenland to me. So I'm sitting there at a stoplight, screaming obscenities at my car radio. I'm fuming about the kind of autocratic, dictatorial, state-controlled media that would push this kind of nonsense. The BBC interviewer challenged the ambassador. But the ambassador said that she'd seen it all on television, this aggression. The interviewer said that there were no independent sources verifying those claims, but she countered back. She said, I saw it. You don't have the same television we do. I watched it on TV. So here I am, in my car, listening to the British Broadcasting Corporation, a state-funded media outlet with a royal charter, and it's being hosted on National Public Radio, a state-funded media outlet. And I've got to tell you, I was getting really worked up into a lather about this Russian invasion. Now, for the record... I believe that we can place a whole hell of a lot more faith in the publicly funded media here in the West than they can in a place like Russia. And at this point, I've stopped screaming at my car radio, I've stopped thinking about the oncoming war, and I've started thinking about the information war. You know, the front lines of this conflict are not in Ukraine. They're in your living room, on your radio, in your pocket, the information war started well before the troops crossed the border, and right now, they're fighting over our minds. I don't have a point to make here, except that this isn't new. You know, this has always been the case in warfare. The first battlefield has never been the battlefield. It makes me think about that Churchill line. Something about the truth is so precious that it requires a bodyguard of lies. This has never not been the way things are. And then, because I'm me, I start thinking about poor Captain Sawbridge and the pirates who would do almost anything in their power to shut him up. This is episode 250. We acknowledge no country. I bet you didn't think I was going to be able to tie this back together, did you? I'm not here to tell you how to feel about this conflict, but I think a lot of us have noticed that there is a disparity in the way that this is being presented, depending on your sources. And today's show is going to involve quite a lot of what I consider to be government-sponsored misinformation. When we left off last time, the John and Rebecca under Captain John Hoare and the Resolution 
under Captain Dirk Chivers, had just captured and then burned two East India Company ships. According to Henry Watson, the doctor on board one of those ships, the Ruparel, quote, On 22 August, about 11 o'clock, the ships were set on fire in sight of the people of Aden, first the Calicut, then the Ruparel, with the English ensign flying. End quote. Now that's a message, flying those flags, but it's not exactly clear to whom the pirates were making that message. The people of Aden? I mean, why would they care? I don't think that this powerful image was intended for the people of Aden, for anybody who was there, in fact. I think it was a message for the people of England. Imagine it in your own country. Some rebels or outlaws who, you know, the kind of people who spit in the face of decency and goodness and everything you hold dear, well, they burn the flag. How do you feel about that action? And, you know, I suppose that depends on who you are, and, more importantly, who those rebels are. Why is it that they're burning the flag? Maybe they support a cause that you yourself find some sympathy with. The people of England and the English-speaking world, well, they certainly weren't anywhere near united in their feelings about the pirates. You know, the balladeers back in London and New York... They weren't singing songs about Henry Every because they hated the pirates. They weren't turning him into a folk hero because pirates were all detestable monsters. It was more complicated than that. The real question, though, about that message, the flying the English ensign high and burning those two ships, is who was sending that message? Was it the pirates? Did they actually do it, I mean, or... Was it somebody else? Suggesting that they did it, despite it maybe not having ever happened, or maybe putting emphasis on something that was mere happenstance. I've been teasing the episodes in which we talk about the English trial system. And we're getting there, sooner rather than later, but it's important right now to remember that jury trials were still a pretty brand new thing in England. The first jury trial, in any form that we would recognize here in the modern world, only happened 26 years before this very event, in 1670, and the judge in that trial threw it out because he didn't like the jury's decision. There had been some reforms, and they were usually adhered to the decisions of the jury, but more and more it was becoming clear that public opinion was something that mattered in England. Ever since the Glorious Revolution, something very like the freedom of the press existed in England, for the first time in ever. But of course this means if freedom of the press exists and public opinion matters, they also need to figure out a way to control public opinion. There's the obvious stuff, you know, censorship and closing publishers and arresting seditious writers. That's something that everyone does. At one point the English government executed a very vocal Jacobite, mostly to make a point to remind anybody, hey, we can still do this, you know. But that's the kind of control of public opinion that takes a sledgehammer. There's also the much less obvious stuff, the subtle nudges here and there to push you in a certain direction. 
things like telling the English people through a testimony that these pirates burned these ships while flying the flag high. It might have happened, but I think they put that emphasis on it to enrage a certain element of the population and maybe sway some people who otherwise might not have cared. And that was one of the earliest forms of this subtle manipulation of public opinion. They used testimony in jury trials which were published. I've been talking a lot about how so much of the bad reputation of Captain Kidd comes from people friendly to the English government speaking in a jury trial. And when, for example, in the first trial of the pirates who sailed under Henry Every, they got testimony they did not like, they literally burned those papers. They don't exist anywhere. With all that in mind, remembering that some of what we hear may not be anything close to the truth, I want to look at the rest of Mr. Watson's testimony. He tells us that the pirates, after burning those two ships, put the rest of the Indian crewmen from those two vessels ashore there at Aden. The Englishmen, though, the East India Company officers, they were taken on board their two ships. And he tells us that the sailing master of the Calicut, now burned, suggested that the pirates plunder the Congo. He says, in fact, the Congo in Persia, and I don't know what he means. I read that as the Muslim dynasty who was in power in Central and Eastern Africa at the time. They weren't from Persia, they were from Oman, but that would be the Congo as I think of it. Jan Ragazinsky, though, puts them in the Persian Gulf. The doctor, though, makes mention of an island of antelopes, which is really what leads me to think of them in Africa. But there are antelopes in Arabia and in Persia as well, so hard to say. But it really doesn't matter. The pirates went somewhere and they hunted antelope. Now, we might think of the pirates as having taken the English sea officers hostage. And, you know, they were, but it's not how we might think of a hostage. They weren't tied up or thrown into the brig. These officers were sailors at sea. They're on a complex machine floating on open water. So they worked. They worked as pilots and guides, Dr. Watson did doctor stuff. It's not betrayal, it's survival. If you're on, say, uh, an English ship in wartime, and the French capture your vessel, you aren't considered a traitor for working on their vessel. It's expected, and vice versa. You have to pitch in, but with pirates who are offering this alternate life, this life of freedom, it does tend to create doubt about who was really still loyal. It did so among these East India Company men, and it did so in the courts all throughout the golden age of piracy. You know, a lot of men who served on pirate ships told the courts they served under duress. The other reason that I think the pirates probably sailed toward Africa is because there wasn't a large Portuguese presence in the Persian Gulf. And once the pirates approached their destination, there were six large Portuguese warships in their way. The Portuguese did have quite the presence on the eastern coast of Africa, so the Congo was out. Instead, they just hunted antelope. 
They did raid some villages on the coast. They got dates, mostly, which they liked. The John and Rebecca went on to capture a French ship, a small ship, but it told them about two big, rich English ships that were just a few leagues away. Dr. Watson makes a point of that. These pirates were thrilled to have the opportunity to attack English shipping. They prepared to set out come the morning. But as evening approached, a ship appeared from just around the bend in the coast. Just a small coastal skimmer, but it looked Portuguese. The pirates were sure it was a scout. Dr. Watson uses the word spy. They thought it was a harbinger for a Portuguese attack, and as it turns out, they were actually right, although they couldn't be sure at the time. The pirates, well, they panicked a bit to hear Watson tell it. Six warships coming for you will do that. Instead of planning to attack in the morning, they planned to leave as soon as possible. In all the turmoil, though, the English East India Company men who were aboard planned an escape. Dr. Watson says, quote, That night, the mates and gunners of the Calicut and Ruparel contrived to escape in a small boat by which he means they did escape, and he continues, which made them, the pirates, think their designs frustrated. Thereupon, the pirates called for me, and threatened to make me fast and beat me, and afterwards turned me on shore naked and on bare rock, or maroon key, as they called it, without food or water. I told them that they knew my daily solicitation to be put on shore, that I knew nothing of these men's going, or I should certainly have escaped with them. This abated their rigor and villainous design against me. During my residence with them, the pirates, they were very kind to me. At about one o'clock they gave me a boat and ten Arabs, whom, knowing something of their language, I persuaded to carry me to Gumran, where the East India Company has a factory. End quote. He's saying that, that evening, some of his compatriots escaped. He did not. The pirates wanted to kill him, but he convinced them that he wasn't in on the plan. So the pirates eventually let him go. And then he says that the pirates were kind to him. That's contrary to the picture that the courts and the government were trying to paint of these pirates. Which brings us to Captain Sawbridge. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Captain Sawbridge was the commander of the Calicut. No. Dr. Watson doesn't mention Captain Sawbridge or any of the events that I'm about to describe. This version of events comes from a Captain Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton published a pretty fantastic account of his voyages through the East Indies. There's not much in it about pirates, sadly, but he writes about Henry Every and his robberies and barbarities at Babel Mendel, but about these events in particular, Alexander Hamilton, not the president, writes, quote, In 1696 they met with a ship from Bombay, commanded by one Sawbridge, who was carrying Arabian horses for Surat. After they took the ship, Sawbridge began to expostulate with them about their way of life. They ordered him to hold his tongue, but he, continuing his discourse, they took a sail-needle and twine, and sewed his lips together. End quote. They tied him up as well. Although they did eventually free him after a few hours, they cut his bonds and they even removed the twine from his lips. They sent him to Aden along with the rest of the English East India Company men, but a few days later his wounds had become infected and the captain died. It's a fairly horrifying image. A little bit Darkly comic, maybe, but it's certainly a good metaphor for censorship, and, I think, a good argument for government-sponsored propaganda. You may have noticed that the good Captain Sawbridge was carrying horses and not coffee. At least in this version of events. Alexander Hamilton continues, quote, After they had plundered Sawbridge's ship, they set her on fire and burned her and the horses together. End quote. That's a bit more horrifying than some coffee, isn't it? All told, this is a shocking narrative. But of course, it didn't actually happen. This is a point on which Jan Rogozinski and I agree completely. Henry Watson, on board the pirate ship, probably would have mentioned in his testimony the time when the pirates sewed a man's lips shut but he never did. He probably would have mentioned the time they burned a ship full of horses alive, but instead he said they both carried coffee. He even says that the pirates treated him well. If you were trying to shepherd public opinion along a certain path, would not that story be better than some doctor saying the pirates really weren't that bad? And I think that was what was happening in this case. However, I need to be honest here. This was not happening in regard to the pirates of the round 
here in the 1690s. It was not a direct response to Henry Every or these atrocities or Captain Kidd. Alexander Hamilton's A New Account of the East Indies was not published until 1724, the same year as A General History of the Pirates, by the way. 1724, though, not to give away too many spoilers, but by that point the Pirate Republic at Nassau had fallen. The Pirates of the Round, though, were enjoying a, a bit of a renaissance, a resurgence in the Indian Ocean. You've got pirates like Christopher Condent and Edward England and the famous French pirate known as Labouze. So, say you were an English sea captain, and you were writing a book that was to be published at the King's Printing House. That's not just a name, it was owned by the King, and it was to be published by a printer under the direct employment of the King, King George by this point. You might just add a little bit of embellishment about the vile, horrible, detestable pirates of the round. At this point, though, once the good doctor was dropped off, our sources get a bit more sparse. After the summer of 1696, they're less colorful. For a while. The John and Rebecca split with the resolution about that time. John Hoare's luck on the John and Rebecca did improve, though, eventually. They captured a few small prizes and one fairly large ship just outside of St. Mary's. When they finally did return to Adam Baldridge's trading post with holds mostly full, they managed to sell a good amount of their cargo to a ship that was there in the harbor. Largely, it was Calico. Some of the men on board, namely Robert Munday and George Cutler, among others, they were the ship's surgeon and boatswain, respectively, sailed home with about 1,500 pounds sterling each. In modern U.S. dollars, that's about a cool million. Now, many of you, maybe even most of you, might consider that plenty to go back home. A couple years' work and a million dollars, not too bad. And I think, in their shoes, I would make that choice. You know, it's a good profit. Maybe not enough to retire on, but enough to buy a house and plant some crops. Have some kids, maybe. Maybe raise some bees, plant a few cherry trees, make good beer and mediocre mead until the day I die. Not a wealthy life by any means, but good enough if you do it right. But that's, you know, that's what I'm after. That's not what most of the pirates were after. They took their winnings. They spent it on gambling and beer and baubles for their pretty new brides. They went back to their island paradise with their Malagasy wives and enjoyed some time ashore, making plenty of babies of their own. And that was what they wanted. Freedom from gods and masters and kings and popes. Freedom to live as they saw fit. And here, with a pocket full of a million dollars, they... Well, they had that freedom. In the meantime, Dirk Chivers renamed the Resolution. This ship... You know, at one point I toyed with the idea of doing ship biographies. La Trampousse, the trickster, was actually the ship that first gave me the idea, but it turned out to be a bit redundant. But this ship, though, 
would make a perfect ship biography. Originally, it was the Algerine Galley, a Barbary pirate ship out of Algiers. The French captured her first and rechristened her the St. Paul. That's when Captain Glover came along and called her Resolution. And now that she was back in pirate hands, Dirk Chivers named her Soldado. Captain Chivers is never going to be as famous as Henry Every or Captain Kidd, but he really should have been. Or maybe could have been, and he very nearly was, but not quite. In November, the Soldado arrived in the waters leading to Bombay, but they were swimming with East India Company ships, so they moved on, sailing down the coast of India. On 23rd November 1696, the Soldado arrived in the waters surrounding Calicut, not to be confused with Calcutta, and I should mention I'm using the English names here, the contemporary English names, partly because I'm sure I'll mispronounce the proper names, and partly because that's how most of us will know of them. The harbor at Calicut had nine ships at anchor when Soldado arrived. It's unclear who fired the first shot, though. Either Captain Chivers arrived on the scene and opened fire at the nearest ship, or the nearest ship opened fire at him, assuming him to be a pirate. Either way, it wasn't long after they arrived before the fighting began. Now, Soldado sailed by, firing a salvo at that ship, while nearly a hundred pirates lowered longboats into the water and rowed with all they had to cover the distance to that nearest ship. The pirates climbed aboard with cutlasses drawn and pistols raised, but in the meantime, the soldado fired at the next ship in the harbor. And the next. Those ships, all of the ships here at Calicut, were really not prepared for an attack. Most of their crews were ashore. At the time, they only had at best a skeleton crew. Now, to their credit, those men rushed to respond, but they didn't really have a chance. This is something you very rarely see. An English port with nine ships at anchors and likely a battery ashore when a pirate sails in boldly and, well, he attacks. It's madness, really, but Dirk Chivers pulled it off. And clearly it was a good strategy. That first ship that the pirates boarded surrendered without any kind of fight because, you know, a hundred pirates climbed aboard. They had, what, a dozen men, maybe two? So the pirates left a few men there to guard their new prisoners, but the rest moved on to the second ship, and the third and the fourth. One of those ships was an East Indiaman. Two of them belonged to the Grand Mughal Aurangzeb, as did all Mughal Empire ships, and one of them was a private merchant, an English merchant. By the time they had captured the four ships closest to the Soldado, they were beginning to grow a bit thin, so instead of capturing every ship in the harbor, they cut the other five ships' anchor cables. All five were carried by the tide toward the shore. But now the pirates held five ships in the harbor of Calicut. They moved them all out of range, but built a defensive perimeter so that nobody would be able to get in or out. It was a naval siege on an English East India Company factory pulled off in an afternoon. The pirates sent a prisoner ashore with a note for the East India Company governor. It was a demand for 10,000 pounds sterling. 
in modern dollars, about 6.7 million. Now those prisoners, those messengers, had a really tough time getting to the East India Company officials. By this point, the locals were furious. They'd swarmed the factory with torches and pitchforks. They blamed the East India Company officers and planned to lynch them. The East India Company factory had been barricaded and was too busy defending themselves against the Indians to worry about the pirates. Finally, though, the messengers talked their way in. They apparently even calmed the locals, and they delivered the message. But that was... that's a lot of money. They sent one of the prisoners back with a counteroffer. It was a third of the originally demanded ransom for Calicut. Also a... a plea. The pirates could see that the East India Company factory was in imminent danger. The men inside were in imminent danger. They begged mercy from the pirates, and they pleaded their common English nationality. But the pirates weren't interested in their common Englishness. They sent a message back. Quote, We acknowledge no country, having sold our own, and as we are sure to be hanged if taken, we shall have no scruple in murdering and destroying if our demands are not granted in full. End quote. That was a shocking message. They had sold their own country? It made the pirates sound almost inhuman to deny their nationality. That's not something people did. Still, they had to negotiate, so they sent out a Captain Mason to do so. He offered half the original ransom, 5,000 pounds or 3.3 million, and that's a respectable sum. But Captain Dirk Chivers refused to accept a lesser amount. He demanded the full 10,000. He told Captain Mason that they would, quote, accept no quarter, but do all the mischief they could, end quote. Twice now they had demanded the full ransom, or it would be upon the heads of the East India Company. As Captain Mason rode back to Calicut, he felt a sudden heat. He looked behind him and a blaze had arisen on board the East India Company ship there in the harbor. The pirates had set it aflame, this time in sight of a company factory. Beyond the burning ship, atop the mast of the Soldado, a blood-red flag was flying. It was a message that the pirates were ready to kill. I... I like Dirk Chivers. Not, you know, the murderous villainy part, really, but I really do wish that we had more of his story. We know that he sailed on the Bachelor's Delight after William Dampier left the crew, and then he sailed with Henry Every under Joseph Farrow. When he was the quartermaster on board the Portsmouth Adventure, the men trusted him, they respected him, he spoke for the crew. And here he was, he renounced his country, he declared the independence of the crew. He seems to me like an idealist, a revolutionary, even. It might be foolhardy to extrapolate that to all the pirates of the round, but he was certainly representative of these pirates, and probably those who did not choose to sail back to New York with their winnings. But his idealism, if that is what it was, 
well, it really needed a bit of pragmatism to temper it. He could have taken that fortune in gold and silver. Three and a half millions, not bad. His men would have lived comfortably, if not as kings. But he wanted all of it. That was his downfall. It gave the governor there at Calicut time. Messages had been sneaked out of Calicut, into the hands of some Indian pirates that were in the employ of the company. One morning, as the pirates waited for an answer and perhaps sharpened their blades, they arose to a fearful sight. Ten Indian pirate ships were bearing down hard on Soldado. They were light, they were fast, and they were surprisingly well-armed. There was no way, even with five ships, that Dirk Chivers could hope to fight them. So he gave the order. His men returned to the Soldado. They weighed anchor, set sail, and fled. Had he succeeded, I think that Dirk Chivers would be as famous as Henry Avery and Captain Kidd, but he didn't. But imagine it. Imagine a terrifying, horrible, monstrous, ghostly pirate named Captain Shivers. Next time, we're going to go back to the Bob El Mandeb, to the Adventure Galley, and Captain Kidd, circa 1697. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight